All right, guys. So it's fall again, and I know we're just a few months away from Creogs. Nick, I'm always looking for places to find good information to make sure that my residents have good information for their exams. And also, you know, I continue to refresh my knowledge of OBGYN. Well, yeah. I mean, you're already listening to what I'll say in my humble opinion is the best podcast in OBGYN, but we also (laughs) have some great other resources available through the resident core curriculum with our friends at the OBG project. Definitely. The nice thing about the OBG project is that not only do they have the resident core, they have an OBG L&D ebook and other things like the second trimester ultrasound atlas, all of which you can access for free as a resident if you sign up. Head over to our website, creagsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar, and again, get the OBG project and all their resources free for all four years of residency. Just, again, head over to our website, creagsovercoffee.com, and get signed up. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is... Creogs over coffee. So guys, we are back again today. We're going to try something new. We're going to actually talk through um, some surgical steps today to try and prepare you for your very first McDonald's or Clash. Um, So Nick, what are our learning objectives for today? Yeah, really excited for this, Faye. So first, we're going to review briefly the indications for a McDonald's cerclage or when it's placed. We're then going to discuss surgical steps of cerclage placement. And then finally, we'll understand the follow-up for a cerclage and sort of the aftercare, if you will. Um, So let's jump right in with this. Um, What is a McDonald's cerclage? Yeah, so to be very brief, the McDonald's cerclage is a suture that's placed around the cervix in this purse-string-like fashion and then tied anteriorly to basically try and decrease the risk of preterm birth in patients who have a history of preterm birth and short cervix um, or someone who has had a second trimester um, loss with a cervical in- insufficiency or second trimester and there's an open cervix um, at less than 24 weeks. And basically for more indications, we're going to ask you to see our previous episode on prevention of preterm birth, which we'll link on today's uh, website. Um, But today, our job is really to focus on the surgical steps. And so for the pictures, um, we would love if you want to keep going back to Atlas of Pelvic Surgery. That's still, I think, my favorite uh, website to look to see the actual steps for this. Um, so talk us through some of those like preoperative, you know, during the operation and postoperative steps, Nick. Yeah. So I think often, you know, if you are ever in a, you know, MFM clinic or prematurity prevention specific clinic, the first thing that you're going to do after you determine that the patient is a candidate and they decide that they want the cerclage is to do a surgical consent. So we'll review the way the procedure is done with the patient to kind of describe with them. Um, and kind of depending on your practice, you may end up reviewing sort of McDonald versus Schrodkar cerclage and why you might do that. We won't get into Schrodkar cerclage today, but that's something that, again, depending on your practice, you might review with the patient. And then, of course, with any surgical consent, after you review the way the procedure is done, you're going to be discussing risks, benefits, and alternatives. So, With risks in particular, kind of the main ones with any type of cerclage placement are injury to the organs surrounding the cervix. And these are kind of mainly the vagina itself, and then the bowel, which sits underneath the cervix, and the bladder, which sits above the cervix. 
There's a small risk anytime you place the cerclage of breaking the bag of water and then resulting in pregnancy loss. Um, there's also a risk potentially of infection or bleeding, though these, again, are pretty small overall, particularly with McDonald's cerclage. Um, the benefits are that you hope to decrease the risk of preterm birth, particularly before 37 weeks and before 34 weeks, based on studies, compared to patients who don't have a cerclage. In a Cochrane review, the relative risk of preterm birth prevention for cerclage versus no cerclage was about 0.77, or about a 25% risk reduction, or 23% if we want to be super specific there, with a 95% confidence interval of 0.66 to 0.89. Finally, the alternatives for cerclage placement in general are one, to do nothing or just do observation with something like cervical length screening. Um, you could consider using vaginal progesterone. Again, there's some alternatives that depending on your context and the actual situation, you can discuss with the patient. Um, what do you do, Faye, to talk about preoperative workup? Yeah, so most providers like myself included, we don't really ask for a lot of preoperative workup like a CBC or anything like that in young, healthy patients. Um, some hospitals do require a type and screen for all patients going to the operating room at one that's up to date. So your patient may need to get blood work done regardless. And most hospitals nowadays are also going to require a COVID swab. One note here is, um, you know, for patients who are RH negative, my practice is to not give Rogam given that any bleeding caused is presumably only cervical bleeding. And hopefully by putting in the cerclage, we are not traumatizing the pregnancy. And so, you know, I think a lot of times people will ask me if I give Rogam for these patients and the answer is no. Um, and then the last things that I just want to make sure before I take my patient to the operating room is the ultrasound and genetic screening. So my general practice is to perform some type of genetic screening if my patient wants it, because, you know, again, we don't want to be putting a cerclage into a pregnancy that is affected by a certain type of aneuploidy that the patient may want termination for. And then, of course, um, before we go to the operating room, I always perform an ultrasound to make sure that there are no obvious fetal malformations early on, for example, like anencephaly. And then, of course, make sure that there's actually a fetal heartbeat before we begin the procedure. And then the last couple of things to kind of talk about are anesthesia. So most procedures usually are done with neuraxial anesthesia, but certainly some patients may be anxious and may want to go to sleep, and I would have them speak with the anesthesiologist beforehand. And then the expectation is that the patient is going to go home the same day. There may be some cramping and spotting, but if more than just some normal cramping or if they're having bright red bleeding, then these patients really should come in for evaluation. All right, Nick, now let's say it's the day of surgery. You've gone through all of this with your patient and you're taking them to the operating room. Talk me through what you're doing. Yeah, so first part of success is setting up your environment. So again, make sure patient has adequate anesthesia and then you're going to be doing prepping and draping. Positioning for cerclage is dorsal lithotomy position. Um, some folks use yellowfin stirrups, other folks use candy cane stirrups. Um, again, it probably depends a little bit on your attending physician um, and sort of the, the habitus of the patient. Um, but whenever you're doing dorsal lithotomy position, you want to make sure the patient's bottom slightly hanging off the bed um, with that kind of sacrum still supported. And then you want the patient's probably in a little bit of a slight Trendelenburg position for visualization. So the head kind of dipped back and the pelvis dipped upwards. Um, Finally, before you begin any part of the surgery, you want to empty the bladder. Um, this is usually helpful to be able to visualize the cervix as well as identify sort of that upper edge of the cervico 
vesicle junction, um, which becomes important for when you're actually placing your stitch. All right, so now that we've got our patient well-positioned and ready, Faye, for cerclage, let's get into surgery itself. Yeah, so the first thing I do is I evaluate the cervix after they've achieved adequate anesthesia, even if I've examined the patient before. And the reason is that after anesthesia and relaxation, sometimes the cervix can appear different or even more open. So in someone who you think that the cervix is way up high, maybe all of a sudden now the cervix is dipped lower and looks more open. And evaluation should be done visually first in case there are exposed membranes. Um, after I do this, I then want to make sure that I achieve good visualization for the surgery itself. So you can place a weighted speculum into the posterior vagina if you want to. Um, I also, my, my favorite practice is to use three Bryski retractors to visualize the cervix because I always feel like the weighted speculum never stays in place for me and then it just hits me in the foot, um, which is very painful. Um, and then what I'll do is place two ringed forceps onto the anterior and posterior lip of the cervix. And this will allow the surgeon to maneuver the cervix in whichever way they want while they're placing their actual stitch. And then the last piece of visualization is to, again, like you said, Nick, to visualize the reflection of the bladder on the anterior cervix to know where to place that stitch. All right, so I've seen everything that I need to see, Nick. I can see the cervix. I can see where I need to put my stitch. So talk me through how you actually put in that stitch. Yeah, so first you're going to use some type of permanent suture when you're asking for which suture you're going to use. Um, so the types generally will fall into some folks use a mercelline tape. Some folks use another type of like synthetic coated suture. So, you know, Tycron is one that is used that's like a coated braided polyester suture. Um, I can't say I see many people using proline, which is a monofilament coated suture that's permanent mm -hmm. as well. But I guess it's theoretically possible that you could use that. Again, you want to use something, though, that is a large caliber suture. So if you're not using Merceline tape, you're going to be using like a zero or a one, not you're not going to be using like a 2-0 or a 3-0 here. Yep. Um, and then if you're using something like Tycron, you usually are going to use a Mayo needle or sort of a free needle that you thread yourself, given that the needle that comes with those larger caliber Tycrons tends to be really, really big. Um, the suture itself, again, is placed in a purse string fashion, and we often will use like four or five bites to work our way circumferentially around the cervix. When I place them, I tend to start at the 12 or 1 o'clock position on the cervix as far back as I can without getting into that bladder. And then you're going to exit kind of laterally. I usually start going from 12 o'clock towards the 9 o'clock position, but you don't want to come out at 9 o'clock. The vessels of the uterus and cervix, right, off those uterine arteries and the branches come in at 3 and 9 o'clock. So we don't want to hit right there on those. So a little bit above 9 o'clock and below 9 o'clock, a little bit above and below 3 o'clock are where kind of your next bites are going to go. Your assistants should be helping you in this case, using those Bryski retractors to hold back the vaginal walls. Um, and then your you as the surgeon should be maneuvering the cervix using those ringed forceps or whatever you have to kind of have traction on the cervix um, to move it around to optimize your visualization and be able to see where your needle is exiting. Finally, in terms of tying the suture, um, you want to kind of whether you're tying your knot at 
12 o'clock, which I think is a case that many of us use. Some folks mm -hmm. will come from each side and tie down at six o'clock, but wherever it is, you're gonna tighten the suture on both sides, recheck that the cervix is actually feeling closed tight um, and that your suture is setting tight. Um, when you're tying down, I think everybody has a little bit of a different value system when it comes to yeah. the number of knots that you tie. Um, Tycron, remember, is a coated suture, though. Um, and so even though it's braided, technically, it kind of acts like a monofilament. And so you usually got to tie a lot of knots there for Tycron, that was something like six or seven. Um, and then I notice here, Faye, you've written that you do four knots throws for merceline tape i would say that in our practice um we probably throw a lot more <laughs> we probably How many do, do you throw for something merceline? like six or seven for merceline as well wow. um <laughs> just it's what we do i guess um again the the point the point of it all in the end though is that you want to make sure that your knot is super super secure you don't want this to come unraveled at any point for ease of removal later, kind of you can do a couple of things. With the Tycron, it's probably easiest to tie an air knot then and tie down a couple more knots to kind of leave a tail. With Mersaline, sometimes you end up with it really, really short depending on the number of things that you throw. So you can kind of do the same thing by putting a tagging suture onto the Mersaline. So I'll often use something that's softer with this, like using a silk suture um, that again is still for the most part, permanent, um, is easily identified and kind of gives a tag to be able to identify the cerclage when you're removing it later. Lots of different technique here, Faye. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> so in any case, um, though we've described the general principles of placement here, um, let's talk next about the post-operative setting because this is also really important for cerclage success. Sure. So in the hospital, you know, before the patient is able to go home, then they need to have their spinal or epidural anesthesia wear off. So they have to be able to walk, they have to be able to urinate. And the other thing that I always do is just to check that there are still fetal heart tones. Theoretically, putting in a cerclage should not disrupt the pregnancy. It should not start fetal heart tones. But certainly you don't want to send the patient out without confirming that there still are fetal heart tones. Um, because if there aren't, then that's actually a reason to remove the cerclage and talk about further management. Um, the question that I feel like, you know, we sometimes get from the residents and is, you know, do we give this patient indocin? Do we give this patient antibiotics during their surgery? And I think the answer to this is a very MFM answer, which is it depends. <laughs> and there is a lot of conflicting data. Mm -hmm. um, so looking kind of back, there's some good data that's actually come out of Northwestern. So in 2014, they had this randomized controlled trial of only 53 patients looking to see if antibiotics and indocin use um, had better outcomes for those getting exam-indicated cerclages. So patients who were coming in and their cervix was already dilated, for example. Um, and this showed that there was an increased time to delivery for those that received indocin and antibiotics, but gestational age at delivery and neonatal outcomes were actually the same in both groups. They then did a repeat study in 2020 with bigger numbers and showed similar results. So I do think that, you know, depending on the reason for putting in the cerclage, if it's an exam-indicated cerclage, I am much more inclined to actually do indocin and antibiotics for these patients. 
However, there are, you know, other studies, a retrospective study, for example, for all cerclages that show that there was no increase in gestational age or neonatal outcomes when you gave indocin or when you gave antibiotics. So usually for me, um, I will not give indocin or antibiotics in someone who's coming in for a history-indicated cerclage, so someone who's already had a cerclage before, you're putting it in at 12 to 14 weeks. Um, I usually will give the indocin and the antibiotics, though, for exam-indicated cerclages um, just because of this new data that's come out. And then the last thing is some follow-up. So usually, you know, one to two week follow-up in the clinic just to check in on that cerclage, make sure the patient is still doing well. All right, Nick, that brings us to the end of this episode. Uh, So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Kriyag's River Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the episode today, head over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media on Twitter at CreagsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreagsOverCoffee. And if you want to donate to the show, you can come onto our Patreon, which is at www.patreon.com slash CreagsOverCoffee. You can find show notes for this episode as well as all of our previous episodes on our website, CreagsOverCoffee.com. You can also find the Rosh Review Question of the Week there. And if you have suggestions for a new episode, if you have corrections for this episode, or you just want to say hi, go ahead and email us, CreagsOverCoffee at gmail.com. <laughs>